Greetings, everyone. I'm here with Caleb Kaltenbach. He's the author of Messy Grace. He's a pastor and Bible teacher. Caleb, thanks for joining our program today. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Caleb wrote a book called Messy Grace, and the subtitle really says it all, How a Pastor with Gay Parents Learned to Love Others Without Sacrificing Conviction. Caleb, I love the book um, for many reasons. We'll get into them. One of the reasons I love it is because all of us that have come to faith had to jump over hurdles or what I would call obstacles to faith. For some of us, it was religion, materialism, uh, all kinds of addictions. You have a different story. Why don't you explain that? Yeah, uh, my my story is very unique. When I was two years old, uh, my parents divorced. They both went into same-sex relationships. Uh, my dad never had one monogamous partner. My mom was with her partner for 22 years. They were activists. They moved to Kansas City, Missouri from Columbia, where my dad was, raised me in the LGBTQ community, and I went with them to parties and clubs and bars and pride parades when I was in elementary school, uh, middle school. And it was there that I saw how some quote-unquote Christians really treated people in the LGBTQ community. I saw the ugliness of Christianity and just things that they would do, like throwing water and urine on people in the parade, uh, saying that this is what Jesus thought about you. This is how he feels about you. And so I decided that that's not something that I wanted to define myself. I didn't want to be a Christian. So I joined a Bible study and learned how to disprove the Bible. And I ended up following Jesus because I found out that Jesus was very different than the people on the street corners, or maybe today we would say the cray cray on social media. Yeah, I love that part of the book. So, uh, the book can't go in so much detail, so I'm, so I'm glad we're here. Talk to me about how God drew you. You know, you're going to a Bible study. You're, you're going to disprove these Christians. Was it a slow process? How did God unfold himself? What was going on in your heart and mind? I really uh, saw this Bible study as an outlet to take my anger and frustration out on. And when I got there, I, I realized two things. Number one, I realized that these Christians were not like the Christians that I had experienced. When I did go to church, my dad would take me to the Episcopal Church. Mm. And uh, while not all Episcopal churches are like this, at this one, we really didn't talk about Jesus. We talked about social issues. And the prayers were all pre-written. Mm. And to me, it was just kind of like an exercise you went through. And then I see these Christians are real. They're authentic. They joke. They laugh. When they pray, they're just kind of praying random things. And, you know, they're, they're just having a conversation with God. And that, that kind of floored me. The other thing that floored me was just Jesus, because Jesus was so different mm. uh, than what I imagined. It's like I couldn't hate him. It's like I could hate Christians, and I still think Christians are weirdos, and I I, I is one, right. so I can say yeah. that, right? I am one. Um, but in Jesus, I saw somebody that had very deep theological convictions and expectations for how we should live our lives and pursue holiness, but I also saw somebody who had uh, very authentic and meaningful relationships with people who are far from God, people who are marginalized, and he, he, was, he was close to... And, and sought out those that the religious elite of his day would have nothing to do with. And that, that drew me in. So at conversion, at least my experience is you have excitement on one end because you want to go tell everyone, and then kind of an uh-oh on the other end, like, 
oh my gosh, my parents are in this religion, my friends are in this religion, or they're partiers. You had to go tell parents you were a Christian. What was that like? Oh, it was terrifying. Yeah. I mean, if you can imagine what a same-sex attracted or gay teenager feels coming out to their conservative Christian parents. I was a 16-year-old coming out as a Christian who wanted to be a pastor and had changed his view Mm. on sexual intimacy as being between a man and a woman. I had to come out as a Christian at 16 years old to my parents. And the reaction they gave me was to kick me out of the house Mm. for a little bit. And, you know, so when I go and speak a lot of different places and talk to um, students or people in college or uh, young adults, they'll say things like, well, you have no idea how my parents treated me. You don't know what it's like to be exiled from your family. And I'm like, actually, I do. Yeah. I really, really do. Yeah. So the second part of the, the, the subtitle says, you learn to love others without sacrificing conviction. Uh, one of the things I love about the book is I think it's one of the best reads on intimacy and sexuality. You seem to hold the biblical standard. You could have deviated and gone another way, a more liberal path, like you mentioned, maybe the Episcopal side of things. But it seems like you were mentored uh, by strong leaders. Did you do a deep dive in the sexuality or issues, or how did that mentoring process go? Well, you know, I'm writing, I just got done writing a book called God of Tomorrow, and I'm writing um, a third book right now called Messy Truth, where I talk about how do you have difficult conversations, how do you um, ask really good questions, how do you measure what kind of truth needs to be confronted and shared and what kind of truth doesn't. And I guess for me, um, both my parents were college professors uh, back in their heyday, and I just really wanted to know the truth. I've always been somebody who has sought after the truth. And I think I saw in Jesus, I mean, I think that if we are going to be like Christ, we have to hold up both grace and truth. Yeah. It says in John 1, 17 um, and one fourteen that Jesus came full of both grace and truth. And so I've just always been, you, you can't get away from the male-female relationship that that flows throughout scripture. Yeah. I mean, and um, I'm I, I'm really good friends with a guy named Matthew Vines, who wrote a book called God and the Gay Christian, where he comes at a uh, affirming, and he's he is same-sex attracted, though he is not in a relationship, and he wrote a book where he comes out affirming of same-sex relationships. I, you know, obviously in mine, I don't like the phrase, but I'm non-affirming, I guess, is what people would call me. But at the same time, when I think about, um, you know, Matthew, um, he's somebody that just really wants a place to belong. And he's somebody that has really felt hurt by a lot of Christians. And a lot of Christians will think, okay, to be able to build influence with somebody, that means that I should not share the truth with that person. And I think to myself, the most unloving thing you could do is number one, not share the truth, or number two, share the truth ungraciously. I mean, because grace and truth are tied together. And so I just, I I could not separate truth from Jesus because Jesus was confusing. I think that's part of the reasons why the Pharisees couldn't stand him. I mean, he was gracious when people expected him to be truthful, and he was truthful when people expected him to be gracious. And um, I think that when we confuse people, we're on the right path. 
So in the book, you say Jesus commands us to love your neighbor as yourself, but it doesn't have an exception clause for a gay neighbor. For that matter, any neighbor we might find it hard to relate to. Now, Calvary Chapel was part of the Jesus movement where hippies came to Calvary Chapel. And I think if we look back and we didn't grow up in that era, we would we would we would look at hippies and we would glorify them. But I remember that period. They were smelly. They were countercultural. Uh, you don't want to be around them, and yet they were accepted. You see any of the similar type ties um, in the LBGQ community? Yeah, I, I think I see similar ties with uh, how some Christians feel towards the LGBTQ community. And I think there are similar ties with how we feel about anyone who's different from us. Yeah. I was having this conversation, not this, but similar one with somebody the other day. And they asked me, they're like, why, why do you think so many Christians really struggle to be kind to people that are different from them. And I said, I think it's because of fear, because we naturally fear that what, that which we cannot understand and that which we cannot control. And so we will naturally feel fear people or circumstances if we feel like we're out of control or we don't understand them. And so I think whenever we meet somebody like that, our response is to give in to our fear or our response is to treat people well. And I think that uh, the key to all this is empathy. I really, really do. And, you know, because empathy is really um, acknowledgement. It's not affirmation. Empathy is walking alongside someone. Brene Brown in her book, Gifts of Imperfection, says that empathy is to feel with another person. Uh, Reggie Joyner, one of my heroes at Orange Rethink Group, says that empathy is to put your own thoughts and feelings on pause long enough to think and feel with another person. Mm -hmm. And so I think that we need to become more and more empathetic with people and offer to walk alongside people no matter the cost. You know, you brought up Jesus would often surprise us with his answer. So he meets a woman at the well. She wants to talk theology. Here's where we worship. Here's how the Jews worship. He switches the topic to sexuality. You've been married five times. The man you're with is not your husband. And then he offers her living water. In a way, he's saying, look, you have looked for fulfillment in all these areas, sexual intimacy. Here's the true source of joy. I think you would agree with this. The Ethiopian eunuch, not a sexual issue. The woman at the well, there's something deeper, right? There, There's a longing we all have for connection, and that's what we're trying to bring people to. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is, you know, first of all, when you talk about that, when she's wanting to talk about one thing with Jesus and he talks about another thing, he does the same thing with Nicodemus in the chapter exactly. before that in John 3. Uh -huh. You know, he brings up a, a subject and he's like, no. We're not going to talk about what you want to know. We're going to talk about what you need to know. And so I think Jesus was very, very skillful at that. But I think deep down, um, you know, uh, Christians get so hung up on the sexual intimacy aspect of uh, the LGBTQ community. And um, I think that's important because, you know, I mean, sexual intimacy, I believe, is... Uh, to be expressed between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage, and anything outside of that is not part of God's design. Right. It's sin. But I also believe that a theological conviction should never be a catalyst to treat someone less. Exactly. And I believe that if we just look at the main issue as sexual intimacy, then we're going to miss what's really going on. It's like we're going to be knocking down a cobweb 
but not killing the spider. The bigger issue here is identity. Yeah. It's who are you identifying with? Are you identifying yourself by community mainly or by your sexual orientation or by Jesus? And I think that's the root problem with every person that we meet. Yeah. Do you identify yourself mainly with a sports team? Are you with your workaholism or, you know, are you with all the initials behind your name and all of your degrees earned? Um, and I think even, you know, uh, as pastors, you know, you and I both know people who have identified themselves and have really gotten their self-validation exactly. from the size of their church yeah. or the size of their platform and their influence. In the author world, I can't tell you yeah. how many people are validated by saying, well, I sold this many this quarter. And people are like, Caleb, how many do you sell? I'm like, I don't know. I don't look. Yeah, Tim Keller gave a great talk about sexuality, and he did a lot of research and showed that Christianity actually gave people for the first time a validation for being single, which in your definition means no intimacy sexually. Um, 1 Corinthians 7 talks about there could be a subset of people who have the gift of singleness, and Jesus himself was celibate. So... Uh, yeah, I think you're right. Our identity is a gospel identity, not a sexual identity. And you know, I believe in I believe in celibacy. I believe in celibacy strongly. Uh, for those who are called to it, or for those who um, are not in the kind of covenant that God created right exactly. after He created the world. However, I think that we as Christians don't understand how it feels to someone when we just say, "Well, you know, you need to be celibate." It's kind of like, here's a quick fix. But for that person, here's what they hear. I'm never going to grow old with someone. I'm never going to have kids in the way that I want to. I'm never going to um, be able to do the things that some people do. And it almost feels like a life sentence. And I feel like, I, I want to see what you think about this. I feel like that if the church is going to um, advocate celibacy, which I would agree with, then I think the church, especially with those who are same-sex attracted, and who have decided to carry a difficult burden by being celibate and not being in a same-sex relationship, I think we have a responsibility to be that person's family. Yeah, well, so when my kids were young, Friday nights, we'd have a movie night. We always had people over. They were always single. Yeah. I never knew it then. I know it now. Most married people were unavailable, at least my guy friends. All my single friends were available. they come out, they'd hang with the kids, popcorn, we watch movies, whatever, and then I realized, oh my gosh, they need family. They just can't keep running around with other singles or sit in a lonely apartment. So I feel like in some ways my gift to other people was our family. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I think th it's it, it's very important in the church. And I think it's, it's extremely important. I was watching this one YouTube um, debate uh, between Justin Lee, who's used to be the head of the Gay Christian Network, the GCN, and a seminary professor at a seminary that I'll leave unnamed. Um, and I usually don't watch debates. I'm not the biggest fan because I think they're boring. I say the same thing over and over again. So Ugh. I'd rather watch Dumb and Dumber or John Candy. <laughs> but um, Justin Lee asked this one question, and it was the best question of the entire debate. He looked at the seminary professor near the end of the debate, and he said, okay, let's say that... I decide to go ahead and, you know, become celibate, and I believe that you're right. What now? Is your church prepared to walk alongside me as I get old? Is your church prepared to 
invite me over for holidays when I'm old and if I'm in assisted living, is your church prepared to uh, come and be with me and visit me and be my family? And that's where this whole concept just kind of clicked in my mind. You know what the seminary professor said? Nothing. He went on to just the next thing he was thinking about. And I was like, oh, you're, you might be smart in the Bible, but you're an idiot in common sense because that you had an opportunity right there to really speak to him because what he was talking about is what you just said, that interconnectedness. He wanted someplace to belong. Yeah, in your book, uh, you have a chapter called A Messy Church. And you say, think about your church and ask yourself if it's a place where it's okay for people to say things like, I'm an addict and I want to know my next step. I can't handle my finances. I'm struggling with porn. I'm not doing well in my marriage. I gossip and feel better when I put people down. I'm having issues with my kids. And I'm struggling with my sexuality. And, of course, the last one is I'm gay. And you talk about how we have a propensity to fix people. Mm -hmm. But what I think you're saying is, can we accept them, pastor them, and get them on a path for having community just like everyone else? I would say yes, because I don't think we have a choice as to whether or not we want to accept people. I think there's a big difference between acceptance and approval. I think acceptance goes back to what I was saying about empathy. You know, acceptance is what Jesus talked about in Matthew 5.46 when he says, if you only love those who love you, what reward will you get? Acceptance is about what Paul says in Romans twelve eighteen, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Mm. Um, but but so I think acceptance is almost a biblical mandate, but that's not approval. Approval is throwing your support behind somebody's life choice yeah. to do whatever. And I think we have to create a place where people can belong before you believe. And by doing that, we have to allow questions. We have to allow this environment that we have within the church to be the safest place to have these conversations because if it's not they're going to go have conversations with other people and give that influence to other people instead of to the church um so what, what kind of fruit have you been seeing from the book messy grace i've seen families come together i've seen uh, people have hope for those they love i've seen conservative ultra-conservative, fundamentalist Christian parents call their kids again after five years of not talking to them. Um, it's been great fruit, but I've also seen churches actually try to go down this process of becoming a belong-before-you-believe church because I'm pretty sure not all the disciples were Christian when Jesus called them. And, you know, you see how Paul engaged the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers in Acts 17. And even when the Apostle Paul gave instructions on speaking in tongues in 1 Corinthians 14, he says, don't do this in public without an interpreter, because if an unbeliever is in your midst, will they not think you are out of your mind? So even there, Paul is asking the church in Corinth to be intentional and not to make assumptions about who is there and who isn't there. And so I think that we need to follow suit and we need to be intentional about knowing that not everybody in the church is on the same spiritual page. Not everybody here wants to be here. Not everybody thinks we're great. Not everybody thinks that they're even Christians. And there are some people that are just there because they got bribed and somebody said, I'll take you out to lunch if you come to church with me. Um, and I think the, the 
more intentional we are, the less assumptions we make, the more that we allow questions to be asked, um, I think that we're going to see a messy church. And that's really what the church is. Caleb, last question. Obviously, the dominant culture um, is passing laws, uh, very accepting. I mean, all this gender neutrality. There is a political side to all this. Mm Mm-hmm. I took an African pastor to, uh, we were here in Philadelphia, so I took him to uh, the Constitution Center, and there's a one-man show, multi-sensory, called We the People, and it showed our history of civil rights, and at the end, he said, now I know why America's so pro-gay in its politics. How does a Christian navigate that? Their kids are going to school where they're told it's normalized, Um, we have that whole issue with... If you're in business and you bake cakes, do you do you have a cake with a, a gay couple on it? Like so now we got these sub layers outside the church. Can you speak into that at all? Yeah. Um I, I start off by saying a couple of things. Number one, I think God uses politics, God uses kings and authorities, uh, rulers, governors. God sent his people to them all the time, especially in the old testament. And God even called some of his people to be um, kings and those in, in authority and uh, so on and so forth. But at the same time, I think we have to remember this, that the New Testament says surprisingly very little about Roman politics. And I've had some people tell me, well, that's because, um, you know, the uh, Rome was not a democracy. Okay, it may not have been a democracy, but it was a republic mm-hmm. in the same way that America is a republic. That's where we get our whole idea from of being a republic. But at the same time, um, you know, did they say something? Sure they did. I mean, Jesus said, give to the Caesar what is Caesar, give to God what is God's. I mean, uh, Peter says in uh, 1 Peter 2.17, when he's giving advice to uh, Christians who are under the persecution of the Roman emperor Nero, he says, honor the emperor. Um, Paul says the same thing in Romans 13. I'm not saying that we shouldn't speak up. I think that we should, but at the same time, Um, I think that there's a liability in us relying so much and thinking that we can only do church under the freedom of religion when in the book of Acts, as you well know, the church grew the most under the persecution and the church grew the most when they were being sought after and hunted. And that's when wildfires, the gospel just spread because all of a sudden um, being a Christian and following Jesus was not just compartmentalized in people's life. It was a life or death issue. And when you follow Jesus and it's a life and death issue, um, nobody will be able to stop you from sharing the message. And so, um, you know, I live in California, you know, it's a very liberal state, right? Um, and there are things that I don't agree with there and the common core within the educational system. And I tell my kids all the time, you know, I mean, we'll, we'll debrief about some of the things that they're learning, you know, and I'll ask them, you know, why does the Bible say that? And, and, you know, say this then, and they'll respond while we have a good conversation or like, you know, I've, I've even had my kids ask me, you know, Caleb or daddy, what is the big deal with why can't two people you know, of the same gender, get married if they love each other. And I said, and I said, well, you already know what God says about that. They're like, yeah. And I said, well, you know, God created sexual intimacy. And sexual intimacy is a very, very important um, thing that God created. But if you look in history 
at any society or civilization, whenever you have taken sex outside of the guardrails that God has given it, you've seen an increase in rape, human trafficking, using sex as uh, a ploy to control people, abuse, manipulation. Uh, Unfortunately, we've seen that in the church lately over the last year, right? Oh, and it's heartbreaking. But I'm like, I told my kids, I'm like, maybe God can look down the corridors of time. Maybe he can see things we can't. Maybe he put those guardrails there for a reason. And so I think that we need to be very intentional about what we teach our kids. Um, But I think we have to teach our kids that the government and politics is one of the forums for sharing our faith. It is not the only forum for sharing our faith. I think C.S. Lewis said it best when he said, every man going to a brothel is looking for God. And that could be heterosexual, homosexual. There is a deep, deep hunger for God. And uh, I love your testimony. I love all testimonies, but I just love how God brings people to faith and then uses them. So uh, if you're listening, I highly recommend Caleb's book, Messy Grace. Not only is it his testimony, he lays out all the scriptures, Old and New Testament, um, in support of what true sexuality is uh, within the framework of God's word. And uh, thanks a lot, Caleb. Thanks for having me. Okay.